This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today I'm super excited because we have Keith Stewart. He is an economist from Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. I'm so used to seeing uh, REBGV. Right. Is it the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver? No, it's just Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Oh, okay. I, I don't know if they put a the in front of it. Maybe an uh? This is... Uh, this is we should have asked Keith. I, I think that was a question <laughs> on my on the floor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I, I think it is. I think it's the real estate board of Greater Vancouver. But yeah, we should have. We really should have covered that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it, well, it's These great. These questions it, always come after the show. <laughs> it's just the problem. But you know what? We do cover a ton on today's episode with Keith. Yes. Keith is such a great guest because he's got the long term, as he'll talk, long term in the housing market. He used to be at CMHC. Before that, the Bank of Canada. For the last year or so, though, he's been at the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. I think everybody's going to know Keith because his quotes are pulled from the real estate boards every right. month and put in all sorts of media. He is the voice for the stats. And he's also quite big on Twitter. And he's also, as I understand it, his job is to produce more and more content for consumers that love data. So it's great to have Keith on the show. And I I'm hoping here that this isn't our last time talking to Keith. No. And and you know what I love about this episode is Keith, obviously, he's a really bright guy. But what I love is he is not afraid to comment about the market, up and coming areas. He puts his neck out, talks about everything, answers every question, doesn't dodge any questions. It's a great conversation. Absolutely. And last but not least, we first asked Keith to come on because there was a jobs report that he put out. And I kind of went down a rabbit hole and Keith has been producing tons of content that is super great. We'll link to some of it on VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, but I didn't even realize this was going on at the REBGV. So yeah, um, yeah shout out to, to what they're doing over there. No, it's, it's definitely an exciting episode. Also, I just want to bring this up because we've, I've had this question a few times from the VREP community. We've got some guests, some economists. We've got a lot of people in the industry that are on right now and going to be continuing to be talking to people who are really kind of in the know and monitoring the market because it's such an interesting market to think about. I also feel like the market is moving so quickly that it's very, very tough, especially as a, as a consumer or somebody moving through the market to get a read on what's happening day by day because it feels like the market is jumping. It feels like every minute it's changing. But the reason I say that, and we should talk a little bit about the market, but before that, I just want to say we haven't lost sight of Zero to Kokomo, and there have been some pretty phenomenal people on the program. We've had some interviews recently, people pursuing their Kokomo journey through real estate investing, and those episodes are in the can. They're going to be coming in the future. Super excited about some fantastic kind of mom and pop style investors and how they're doing it. So stay tuned for that, that's coming in in the next few weeks. But Matt, the market feels 
insane? A little yeah, insane? The, the market, the last time it felt like this in Vancouver, at least Vancouver condos, I would say is 2017. Right. 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 And, and it, it, the last couple of weeks specifically remind me of 2017. And by that, I mean, you're competing on the buy side with not two, three, four offers, but more like, like seven offers is kind of a week, <laughs> a week turnout in on, many, on, in on many a cases. listing. Yeah. And the prices are unreflective comparables any comps, yeah. in any way. And it's, it's kind of like, it's very hard to figure out what, what the right to, to win. And I remember feeling like this in 2017, because at least in 2017, what, as I recall, it happened was at first it was kind of uncomfortable what's happening. Then it kind of got in that rhythm where it was just, you know, month over month, you're seeing three to 5% easy. Right. And we ended up 30% higher. And I just wonder right now, we're early days, but man, the last week or two feels kind of intense, like in a way that I don't hardly It's very intense. Yeah. And we're coming out of a weekend of, we both, I think we've probably between the two of us are about six, six, seven offer presentations in the last few days. It is busy. It's, it's insanely busy. The issue right now is that what we were seeing kind of in the detached market and the townhouse have to, all the COVID friendly product has now spread to just across the board. It feels like it feels like all condos are busy. Everything's just busy, like right, right across the board. And also the hysteria of like maybe what's been happening in the Fraser Valley has kind of hit Vancouver in kind of a similar type yeah, vein. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, right? Because we talked about the year of the condo back in November, I think, right. as 2022 potentially being the year of the condo. And we talked with Keith a little bit about this today, but a lot of the logic there is, you know, obviously kind of COVID disappearing from kind of a huge concern, but also the gap between townhomes and single family and people migrating back to condos. And the interesting thing right now is definitely feels like condos are heating up in a big way, but there hasn't been, <laughs> there's no pause right. in townhomes or single family either. Like, it's just like this last week was just bananas across the board. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it is, you're right. It's it's so tough and it's so tough for buyers too. You comp out a property and then it's like, well, here's what the comps support. What are you willing to pay? And usually it's uh, a few points plus over what the last comp support, right? So it's it's a tricky, tricky time. And it also, it does feel for a lot of buyers, it, obviously the price points are unsettling, right? Especially when you can't see something that's tangible that supports what you just paid, but that's what it takes to win. Yeah, and here's the last point here. And we've talked, you know, a couple of weeks back to Kyle Green and the idea of interest rate increases doesn't seem to be having any, I don't know if this is the, I wouldn't say this is the calm before the storm or people trying to get in prior to interest rate increases, because as Kyle pointed out, like we're already five-year fixed at close to 3%. Right. Right. So it's like, you know, that, that doesn't seem to be impacting anything at this point. So does a quarter point or a half point in March change things? It's hard to, to think that's the case, but I guess we'll wait to see. Yeah, we will wait to see. And and I just want to make a, a plug here for the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Oh, that right. Is our sister show hosted by Corey Wright, because we had an absolute banger of an episode this past uh, that just went actually went out. I think it was on uh, Tuesday of this week called What's Next for the Canadian Economy with Doug Porter. That title does not quite do the show justice. In fact, uh, I feel like I should go back and, and edit it. But it, in reality, Doug Porter, as a lot of people will know, is the chief economist and managing director for BMO Financial Group. Spends a lot of time on BNN. He's on BNN all the time. 
But really, it's it's talking to Doug about so many things about the economy, inflation, interest rates, his outlook. He's got a very interesting way of thinking about what's happening in the real estate market in Canada right now. So if you haven't listened to that episode on the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast, definitely check it out. It's it's VCREP number 37. What's next for the Canadian economy with Doug Porter? It's a fantastic episode. But Matt, without further ado, why don't we cut to our conversation with Keith Stewart? Yeah, we're talking stats, most recent stats, but also the market this year. Great conversation. Soon to be past guest fan favorite, I think. We'll have to have Keith back on. Yeah, huge soon. fan of this guy. Yeah, he's... You know, the other thing that he said off air was, uh, I think he said Center Ice, where, where the number one spot to live was a block away from my home. Oh, yeah? Which was kind of exciting. Don't you oh, remember that? Yeah, that is exciting. Yeah, I know. Keith Stewart he's got, likes, he's got a finger, likes his where fi- you live. His finger on the pulse. Yeah, he's actually not far, though. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, without further ado, let's talk to uh, economist at REBGV, Keith Stewart. Yeah, that didn't sound uh, <laughs> challenging. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This week's podcast is brought to you by Hawkeye Wealth. Yeah, past guest fan favorite Justin Smith and his team. Fantastic guy, Justin Smith over at Hawkeye Wealth. Hawkeye helps our clients invest in various private real estate investments, such as residential and industrial development projects with an aim to diversify their portfolios and achieve better risk-adjusted returns than they would find elsewhere. Yes. You, you, you really dragged on that elsewhere. Elsewhere, yeah. <laughs> well, always when I think of Justin, I think big network, great due diligence, and a deal finder. If you're interested in learning more of what they're doing over at Hawkeye Wealth and the opportunities that become available, head over to hawkeyewealth.com. That is hawkeyewealth.com. I finally got it. Hawkeye, like he's a he's a deal finder. He finds the deals. That's hawkeyewealth.com. Thanks, Justin and the team. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Okay, so we're here with Keith Stewart, economist, at the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. How you doing, Keith? Great. Thanks for having me this morning. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, Keith. It's great to finally have you on the show. Maybe for our listeners here, can we start with you telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I've been in this position with the Real Estate Board for just under a year at this point. Before that, I had a few positions with CMHC. So I worked kind of both in their kind of market analysis, and I think you've had other past guests kind of from that shop coming on talking about kind of, you know, kind of the ins, ins and outs of what kind of brokers, mortgage, you know, bankers, everyone's kind of really interested in, you know, where sales at, where it starts at, that kind of stuff. I also worked for a few years in, on kind of federal housing policy and what should be the government's role in housing, especially at the federal level, how does it relate to the provincial level? So I'm pretty familiar with the debates, the challenges, the political kind of bottlenecks towards getting anything done, the will to do things, the reality of just where politicians sit on kind of these things. 
And then before that, kind of early in my career, I spent uh, just over a year at the Bank of Canada. And that's kind of how I got into housing. Originally, it was kind of on the other side of like, well, who makes all these mortgages and how do they see them? And how does the government think of that? What's the government's role as far as insuring them or that kind of stuff on the back end? So that's kind of how I originally kind of came into the housing world from kind of just a general economics background. Keith, it's kind of you've had an interesting trajectory from working at the Bank of Canada to CMHC. It sounds like wearing various hats there and now with the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. I'm kind of curious about your role as economist and how the institutional cultures of these different kind of very different institutions shape or have shaped your understanding of the of the housing market here in Vancouver. Sure, yeah. So you know, coming from originally from the Bank of Canada, and again, I quite a junior member of the team back then. And you know, what in, in both it and CMHC are both you know these kind of behemoths, right? As far as being these big government bureaucracies, but you know, the Bank of Canada at the end of the day, housing is not about housing today, right? It, it's really just about risk, right? And they're just they just look at the U.S. and they just say, how much is this housing thing going to cause a problem for us, right? What are we going to have to do? Who are we going to have to bail out? Who are we going to have to discipline? What are we going to have to do or intervene in the marketplace for just the general sake of the wider financial sector and then the follow-up onto everything else in the real economy? So, like, everything the Bank of Canada does around housing is ultimately through that lens, right? Like, housing is just a risk, right? It's just a lot of debt that backs the whole thing. They're in the business of affecting credit conditions and monitoring that, so that's how they see housing. CMHC is a, is a funny beast. CMHC is really kind of got wears a lot of hats in the market and has different, you know, has had different leadership and different roles over its many decades. And it always plays a role in that affordable housing, which is like what I would call that capital A affordable housing, which is directly government funding for basically improving housing conditions for people of usually pretty modest means. And then that other kind of affordability we talk about, which is just can I afford to rent a home? Can I afford to buy a home? What can I get? What's happening with that? How expensive is that today than it was last year, five years ago? That kind of housing. And so there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of tension within the organization because people have different focuses on that. And then you go over to the real estate board, which is kind of more of an organization that's like, well, you know, it's the industry's association and its main role is really around outside of the kind of the education part and stuff for the actual agents themselves, it has a lot to do with just the MLS system, right? And just kind of like, you know, I like to, you know, the MLS is basically just the stock ticker for the market, right? Whether it goes up or down or sideways or up here or down over there, it's just what's keeping track really, right? And then a lot of my job just becomes trying to keep numbers straight, right? At the end of the day. And so I would say the, you know, the real estate board's more on the view of kind of, you know, just trying to be accurate with the numbers and trying to say, like, well, we'd like to do what we can with policy to keep housing as affordable as possible, given the market that we exist in, given the context of the economy, the desirability of Vancouver at the end of the day. You must be really good at Paragon. <laughs> at Paragon? Well, I, 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 I pull data from the back of Paragon. Okay. (laughs) I was going to say, because we have this research tool called PCS you might be interested in. Um, Maybe moving, kind of shifting gears here. We just got to January stats here. We're just in in the first two days of February. Just got to January stats. There were lots of quotes from you, Keith, in the write up. Can you talk about the story of the January stats and, and were there any surprises this month? 
No, I mean, so, you know, the data comes out every month and, you know, there's always a little wiggle somewhere or some uptick somewhere. But like when I step back from the stats and really look at it and say what I what I really just see is we are pretty much exactly on the same trend as we were, say, midsummer. Right. We're in a condition where basically new new listings are pretty much around the money where they are kind of very long term averages. We've seen this surprising to me, this uptick in sales that we've seen continue throughout the fall. And sorry that we saw we saw this very strong spring right back in 2021. We set new records. Things were still very strong, but they came off these kind of unbelievable peaks into the summer. And then things just heated up, especially into the late fall. And as far as we can tell, January's just continued this trend when you kind of adjust for the seasonal patterns. And our active listings just continue to get pulled down. I mean, this is the story everyone keeps talking about is though there's no listings, there's no listings. And I mean, it's just, there's no real surprise here, right? We have normal new listings and we have sales that continue to really just want to kind of push the upper bounds of what's kind of in the historical range of number of sales you get month in and month out. Sales to active remains super elevated. And, you know, if you look at those sales, looking at just over 25%, when we look at detached, we're looking at more closer to 50%. We're looking at apartments and we're looking at, attached product and something that's you know maybe a little less obvious is that the detached section is way more sensitive to the sales to active listings ratio than the rest of it the prices will go up faster on a lower rate so just because that's lower doesn't mean there's actually less price pressure in that market actually at the end of the day so yeah i mean i keep looking at this stats monthly and just kind of think well when's the trend going to break right as rates rise at some point you're going to expect sales are going to start going to turn they're going to give up the ghost a little bit but until that happens uh, and they haven't yet. Inventory just can't build at the end of the day. What what will it take for inventory to build? It's it's, it's pretty simple. It's the sales will need to come closer to normal, right? Like when you just look at the scale of the market, like new home construction, right? It's only about a good year. You'd be hitting two percent of the entire housing stock. Now it's greater as far as the actual transactional volumes, but new building definitely helps. But if sales are really elevated you basically can't get actives to build. Actives are a really funny measure if you really look at it because new listings are, they're very seasonal, but they're also relatively steady over time. There was a spike around COVID, which is kind of odd if you really look at the long-term time trend on, on new listings. But really, like your active listings really just reflect the kind of accumulation, right, over time, right? It's a cumulative stock measure. And we know how powerful it is for kind of like our short run, one quarter out, kind of price trends that we see. And it's really just, when you're saying actives are really low, what you're all you're really kind of saying is sales have been persistently high. Just so everyone understands, demand has been extremely high, right, since for the last 18 months or, or whatever. But in terms of active listings for January, we're kind of in a normal range in terms of, of new inventory? Or, or do do I have that wrong? No, no, no. We're we're way down. It's new listings that are normal, right? Like, what I'm saying is that the what you when you see these very low active listings, what you're in saying in the same breath is that sales in the you know the three, six, twelve months leading up to the day that you're talking about the stats have been high, is what you're saying, right? Yeah. But I guess yeah, yeah and, and yeah. Sorry, I I, I may have misspoke yeah. there. Just to understand, yeah. January. So we're coming off very low inventory because of increased demand for over a long period of time, but actually January saw a decent level of, or a normal level of new inventory. But it's yeah. just because of that over time, we've had such a low level of inventory 
that it's like, you know, dropping a pebble in, in a pond or something like that. It's not making a huge impact. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, if you just kind of, if you think about it, right, we talk very common in the industry, I talk with sales to listings ratio. If you just look at that number, because sales, now this can vary by some of the submarkets, as you know, you can get a sales to listings ratio over 100%. Not very common, but if you want to talk about some places on the island or stuff, we can talk a little differently about that. But just in general, plus or minus one sale affects that ratio more than plus or minus one active listing, right? So really, it's the sales conditions persistently over time that are really driving that. So the sales active listings ratio really just becomes this kind of like momentum measure, right? It just kind of says, hey, how strong sales are today relative to how strong they've been in, in the past. And as long as that's a kind of on an elevated scale, prices will rise. So one of the things we were going to ask you is, you know, what shakes out more inventory? But if I understand, actually, maybe that question's framed kind of the wrong way, right? Because actually inventory is at normal levels. It's just that we're dealing with this insane demand over the last 18 months that we have to try and build up. And the way to do that is probably not more people want to sell. It's actually something leading to less demand month over less month. absorption. Right. Yeah. So it, it, it's really both. But if you look at the historical data, if you just kind of look at buyers and sellers over time, and I have some early reports that I make and send you put in the links for the episode if you want. One thing you got to say is that the real estate market, like pretty much every market, is what you know you say is demand-driven. It doesn't mean that's oh, only demand matters for setting the conditions you see. You just notice that over time, the demand side is more variable than the supply side. So the conditions you see at any point are more likely being caused by what's happening on the demand side. Interesting. So Keith, if you had to isolate... What in your mind is the most important stat to watch kind of month over month? Yeah, as far as actively tracking it, I mean, it's cliche, but I mean, you really can't beat the sales to active listings ratio, really, as far as what you're actually looking at. But I really do like to look at in terms of, you know, your that ratio changes based upon both the numerator and the denominator. So I really follow both of them and say, I really want to know the trends going into that ratio over time and just really seeing like what's happening as far as what's happening to sales kind of on a a long-term basis right so all this data is very very seasonal everyone kind of works it a lot really knows that and that's kind of part of the problem about if you're just kind of a person who just reads these numbers this quickly in the media right you know my favorite is whenever you see things like New listings in December were down, you know, 100% over November or something, as if that's a statistic that means anything at the end of the day. That, it, you know, you see, you hear these numbers all the time. Really, what I would I look at as kind of a person that's tracked this up pretty closely at the end of the day is just what are those long-term averages and how, how far above or below are you as far as the sales, the new listing side and the active listings, and then what's the ratio of them? And if you look at that for long enough, what you'll notice is that the new listings one is the one that actually moves the least over time. And that really your balance in your market is just kind of determined, right? How, by just how strong have sales been? And I think the best analogy is, you know, it really, it's been a while now, we're coming on two years, right? But the whole toilet paper story in COVID, Right. If you go to the store and the toilet paper is sold out, and then you ask the question, is it a supply or demand issue, and there's no toilet paper there, you don't have enough information to answer that question at the end of the day, right? Right? You don't. You just you just observe there's no inventory. That's all you see, right? You're like, well, did the truck not come in and deliver them? Was someone here and 
bought them all up in front of me was there like you don't have like without that information you don't know why there's nothing there to sell to you right? right at the end of the day and i think that's what's really important is that you can't just look at active listings and say you know the whole story there there's nothing for sale you're like well how did we get here and it's not surprising it's like well the number of trucks delivering new product has been about as steady as it always has been and more people want to buy it at this point now in the longer run you got this question about like well why can't supply ramp up to meet this elevated level of demand this needs to be this is what people want to purchase that's a bigger question structurally around our housing market the supply side the actual evolution of the housing stock that actually comes up onto the buy and resell side of the market but you know when we're talking these kind of month in and month out this month compared to six months this month compared to 12 months ago um that side of the market's really it's just so small compared to do more people want to buy homes or not right as far as driving the market right right yeah. no that makes a lot of sense what you know in, in kind of thinking back over the the last 18 months it's been kind of a wild market to be a part of what what's been most surprising for you yeah so again um you know i'll, I'll just put this out there that you know i, I was one of these people who purchased a home kind of mid 2020 and looking around at just how, you know, what the forecasts were at the time, what people were kind of saying, because I think a lot of people who follow stuff quite closely, you would have looked at most models, you would have looked at what's happened to GDP, you would have looked at the labor market. And you're not wrong. You would have looked at that and said, oh, okay, well, the bottom should fall out of this market. And that's kind of the basis of like all those claims that you kind of saw in the market. Now, what I was really surprised about was, as we went into the summer of 2020, was the number of people out there talking about deferral cliffs and people talking about people who are not going to pay their mortgage and when these kind of when the forbearance was was set to expire and all these things had kind of come up at the time. It's like, oh, well, we've delayed this kind of inevitable reckoning for our real estate market. And I made this point to kind of some colleagues back then. It was like, well. I don't get it because at the end of the day, everything locked down in March. By the time we got into July, August, new listings had not spiked. Prices had held or even up a bit. And I was like, well, all these people can't pay their mortgage. Why aren't they selling? Right? So it made no sense. It, it, like I, at that point, I was pretty confident to say, like, well, there's no, there's no kind of delayed crash at this point that all we're going to see here is the we're going to have some persistent strength in the market on low interest rates. And sure enough, that's where we actually ended up. Now, I'm surprised at how strong things got by the spring of that we saw in the spring of 2021. And that kind of persistent strength that we saw into the fall at this point. I mean, if you think about it, like in 2021, rates kind of on five-year fixes, right? If you remember, like no one's handing out. Um, you know, if you were had an aggressive broker, you were you could break you know the one point five point on a five year fixed, and you know we're now we're well over a hundred basis points over that throughout that year, and yet we're still it refuses to bite as far as the sales volumes that we're seeing, right? So, you know, this deep discount and affordability there on a relative basis is not there anymore, and yet we continue to see these strong sales, and I mean. I mean, it's a, it's an odd time. Everyone's kind of pointed this out that people's priorities are all shifted. People's budgets are all shifted. Everything's kind of like, well, if everyone's going to be home, what else are you going to spend your money on but your home at the end of the day? So just thinking about that, the five-year fixed, call it one and a half, and now we're basically at pretty close to three. Yeah. You know, last last 
week or the week before, whenever it was, when when yep. the Bank of Canada didn't raise rates and everyone was surprised. Obviously, I think they've signaled that March is undoubtedly going to have a, an increase. But what do interest rates do this year, and how do you think that impacts the market if if we see a you know two, three, four increases? Yeah, so we're in this kind of interesting world where. You know, I think a lot of people have been, you know, who watch stuff pretty closely, including a lot of listeners, know what happened to the market. And I don't think the media fully picked up how much, you know, there was, it always varies by product by type. But basically, you know, you had to say in general, it's like, listen, prices started to rise throughout, not super strong throughout 2017. And then they really started to rise into 2018. And we got the stress test there. And like, if you had to generally characterize it, prices fell for about 18 months, right? Between all of 2018, more or less, until like the, we really didn't find bottom until mid 2019. Like the market was recovering well before the pandemic. And I think people were surprised, especially by this, they got into late fall in 2019, especially the early spring pre COVID, just how strong actually things were in the market at yep. that point after being relatively weak. And, you know, I think that's kind of on everyone's mind. It's like, well, the last time we broke 3% on five year, I know how weak it was out here. So what's, what's up, right? Why have we not kind of reverted back to those conditions? And, you know, this is not an exact science here, right? As far as like, you know, the, the amount of sales and the pricing, like the interest rates affect these things, but it's not like, here's the interest rate, here's the exact price level that you're going to expect for Vancouver, right? There is these long-term trends that seem to just kind of push through, kind of the fluctuations of general conditions over time. So where do we go and you know what what have, what have we gotten here? Like eventually it is going to bite and we start going over 4% there on on five year fixes. I mean I would I, I really would start to say we're going to start there's going to be a lot of pressure to bring kind of sales back into the long-term averages. That's where you're going to finally start to see actives actually again in no way will they quickly recover. We're talking a 12, 18, 24 month recovery period as far as even getting close to the long run average for like the last five plus years for active listings. And even then, if you look on historical, you know, active listings have not have not been able have, you know, they they go up and down, but they've not really been able to recover to even the levels we saw in the mid-2000s ultimately, really, right? So never mind a growing region. So there's still a lot of upward kind of longward pressure there on prices, right? At the end of the day, but there still has to be someone who's willing to pay it, right? So I think you're going to see these kind of relationships like you see right now, where like even though the sales to active listings ratio is going to show a lot of upward pressure on prices, it may not be as strong upward on prices as say a ratio of 25 would have been if it was 2004. Right, as far as how fast prices could rise on that same kind of tightness in the market, because it just affordability just continues to be this like you know the demand's there, it's the ability to pay for it that really determines how active the market is. It sounds like even with some substantial shifts, prices are going to be sticky or trending upwards potentially for the next two years. Well, yeah, I mean, what what I mean, this year is going to be interesting because the beginning of the year could be quite different from the later half of the year. I mean, regardless of what the Bank of Canada does, and I think this is important to point out, is that when the Bank of Canada held rates last week, is that we didn't see any big shifts in the bond market, right? So it's not like anything was a real shock to the actual market participants who are actually putting their money down on the table on this stuff versus the you know, the economist political 
you know, I think it's four rates. I think it's six rates kind of class. I'd suggest you don't listen to it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, my, my, my joke and, you know, it's not really my joke. And people have said this over time. I think, you know, I, I'll just quote, um, you know, I'll just quote like Peter Lynch, right? At the end of the day, like, you know, predict interest rates twice in, right in your life. And you're a billionaire. I don't know many billionaire economists. So like, why are you talking <laughs> to them? About it, right? So, you know, like, you know, it's like as things are pointing today, low inventory, continual upward pressure on prices, rates go up, expect sales to come down, expect prices to definitely that price growth there to probably stop accelerating upwards. But there's nothing in the cards right now as the data sits that says, oh, yeah, these prices are just the price pressure here is just weakening and you should expect these things to dip any moment. Like there's just nothing there in the data that will ever support that. Well, and just to go back to to one thing you said, it it sounds like you know there's potentially pressure on pricing over the next twelve to twenty four months because even with you know inventory levels rising, we're still not going to be at the those kind of healthy levels. But it sounds like another point you're making is it can remain a, a fairly robust seller's market, but if we kind of get to a point where people just can't pay more, pricing can kind of be stagnant and we'll still see super high sales ratios, but we won't see the type of increases like or continued increases the way we've seen them over the last 18 months. Yeah, I think I think that's 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 just it, right? That we're still if we're in a situation where basically buyers are like, well, I can't pay more, and sellers are in the situation where, well, I don't need to sell, the economy is improving, unemployment continues to come down, things like that. But you, you kind of get what the, what happens, right? Is that the market just has you get fewer deals because you give you have the the ability of the parties to come together on a mutually agreeable deal just kind of becomes harder and harder, right? right. That's what you start saying, yeah. Right. In thinking about one other segment of the market, and and I guess when we think about MLS, we don't think of new construction. Not a lot of new construction is traded on MLS. The pre-sale market has been very very busy. It's very challenging to buy at a lot of projects throughout the Lower Mainland. Does the pre-sale market play a role in your kind of ongoing analysis? Is it something that REBGV kind of ignores or how is it informing your thoughts on the market? Yeah, so I don't spend a lot of time looking at at pre-sales um, just because it's not and it's not a it's not heavily kind of put on the MLS kind of product. The only thing I do look at is for the most part really, I mean, the only kind of section of the market where you see a decent amount of pre-sale on MLS is duplex, right? So a lot of like smaller low rise stuff will show will be marketed through MLS. So I do see, you know, what a new duplex is going for, especially in things like City of Vancouver, where we've had for policies a few years, we're really starting to see. You can see this really in the construction data as well, and permitting data, where it seems that buyers basically both the market's improved and that there is this market for 1.5, 1.6, even 1.7 duplexes brand new on these sites. And developers are willing to chase them, right, with land that they've kind of purchased 2018, 2019, buying teardowns at 1112, right? That kind of seems to be what's been happening on that side. So, I mean, I do follow that. As far as on, on major launches, it's not a thing that I'm a big commentator on. I kind of leave it more to the urban analytics guys and others on that kind of side to really right. be the, the, the lead for that. Right. And maybe this is going beyond the scope here, but in, in thinking about the fact right now that Generally speaking, in a lot of sub-markets, pre-sales are, you pay anywhere from about a 20 to 40% premium over, you know, good product in the, in the resale market. 
Does that signal anything to you as an economist who watches the housing market? Uh, I mean, the pre-sale market's interesting. I mean, it's it's I, I I mean, it's tempting to kind of say like, oh, is this the future? Right. And people are kind of pricing this as like this kind of thing where it's like, well, where the price is going to be at. Maybe some investors like the inbuilt leverage, right? The deposit structure, right? Without having to get a mortgage. Is that actually a thing? As far as like being this like super strong barometer of where the market's going to go, like I would just say, like, I don't have any real empirical things to point to and say, like, oh, this has actually been some sort of persistent, strong indicator that I'd really want to hold up and say, because you're seeing this in the pre sale market, expect this in the future. I think it more just speaks to potential for a lot of buyers, their frustration to be able to buy anything at this point, right? And that's right. You know, it's a way to just kind of sign some paper and have a deal done. Yeah. And I also wonder if it's, uh, you know, people that would might invest in the stock market that, you know, are just trying to deploy money. And in pre-sale often seems like it's easier than going into the resale market in many cases. Or it yeah, can for, be. I mean, I mean, for sure. I mean, this is this is the thing, right? Like, you know, with with interest rates where they've gone, with what's been happening as far as, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find to, to by a lot of traditional metrics of anything. Doesn't matter what market that is to say, oh yes, this is, you know, things are are undervalued here, right? Like as far as on an objective basis, so. As far as if you're looking at equity markets, real estate market, pre-sale existing. Um, you're kind of in this world where there's kind of just persistently more buyers and sellers of basically everything. At right. This point. So <laughs> right. it's like, where do you see, where do you see relative value? And that's, you know, you have to deploy your capital somewhere, as you said, right. And cash is eating your money faster than it has in a very long time right now. Right, so, right. You, you know, it shouldn't be surprising that there's groups of people that want just to grab hard assets, right. In that kind of environment. You know that that's that actually leads perfectly to the to the next question, Keith. You know we've talked a lot about inflation, especially in relation to what it does to interest rates and how interest rates impact the real estate market. But maybe can we talk? You know, apart from interest rates, what inflation looks like? I guess a crystal ball type question over the next year. I guess we've moved away from transitory for the most part. But how how does that actually impact the Vancouver real estate market? You know, thinking less about interest rate increases sure so i mean inflation's a funny beast you know we talk about it as terms of you know how what's the inflation rate at and you know if, if you're a person that's kind of you know there's been a uh, you know i call them the laser eye people on twitter right but i mean there's been like oh well the true you know the true inflation rate is 15 percent. i'll throw out these numbers right out there <laughs> um i'm willing to debate people on it's like, can you please bring some other information of how you would like to calculate inflation as to, I don't know, this, this would be triple what a, whatever the government told me, right? It seems to be more what you see out there. So I will point out that inflation at the end of the day is not, uh, you know, it's not a gravitational constant. It's not some fixed physical law. It's kind of, well, what have we decided to count, right? It's this, so when people talk about inflation, what they're talking about is the consumer price index on a year over year basis, that they see. And something I got to say is kind of interesting is that people have kind of been pointing out, if you've really been following this debate, like right now we're kind of flirting at 5% and the U.S. is flirting at 7%. And there's been this whole thing about like, well, the U.S. tracks used cars in their basket of goods and the CPI Canada doesn't. So this really points to like, these are still constructed metrics that economists are trying to use, kind of say like, 
what do we see as what's changing out there as far as a cost of a basket of goods that no particular household actually consumes, right? It's just averaging over everyone's basket, right? And I think inflation is experienced pretty differently by different players out there, right? So you paid off your home and walked to work, you, you're going to experience inflation pretty differently than people who, uh, you know, burn a lot of gas, commute downtown from Alder, you know, from like basically from Abbotsford or something like right. that. And, um, you know, you're looking to buy your first home, like inflation, those are going to be very different things for different people. Ultimately. And the Bank of Canada is not targeting, you know, your inflation rate for your life. It's targeting kind of for all of us in this kind of averaged across everyone, but also no one kind of situation right so i think the biggest thing i'd point out actually at this point i think um i think people understand real estate stats and understand this quite well is that if you look at actually on a month over month and even if you want the bank has most recent report that came out with their announcement last month we're already starting to see inflation again measured by the cpi is starting to actually dampen down on a month over month basis so the same way you know you might say oh here's prices on a year over year basis and it's up 12%, 12%, but you're like, oh, yeah, but it's been flat for the last six months. We're really starting to see that potentially the worst is behind us already, actually, on the inflation front. Now, new data comes in next three months, that story can change. But like already, I think it's been hidden a little bit that you're already starting to see deceleration, actually, in those inflation rates. And that it's quite possible the bank can will not have to move as aggressively as some of these, you know, ultimate like hyperinflation kind of extremist people are really saying they're going to have to hike super aggressively to get this under control. I mean, wages, uh, wage growth, inflation expectations, all these things kind of part of that transitory story are still there. I think the best way to kind of put this is that the transitory story is still very much in play. People have just decided to drop the term. At this yeah, point. I was going to say, you <laughs> yeah. heard it here first. We're bringing back transitory. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that's I mean that's my view, but like I'm willing to be again, I'm one of these people who's pretty fluid to, you know, new facts will come in and I'm willing to change it versus having this super sure view of just how the world's going to work over the next 3 years, right? Right. Right. So, so Keith, maybe switching gears a, a little bit here. Recently, you just released a jobs report and maybe we can talk about more at the end about kind of the newer content that you're producing for for the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, but can we talk about the most recent jobs report that you released and and the impacts you see that having? Sure, yeah. So I mean, the the jobs numbers don't move too much on a month over month basis, but I think the main point to point is that if you've kind of followed Metro Vancouver's labor situation is that it's been a place that's persistently had lower unemployment than most of the rest of the country and even most of the other large urban areas. And the other thing is that it's one of the places that recovered a bit quicker compared to the rest of the country, especially I like to look at how is Vancouver doing compared to the other kind of parts of the country that are, instead of saying compared to Canada or compared to another province, compared to what's kind of the other, what I call the ultimately the big six, the, the metro regions in Canada that have more than a million people. So that's basically Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Ottawa, Toronto, and Montreal, right? And basically say like, hey, like, listen, this is where... A lot of economic, this is where by far most economic activity happens in this country. This is really the growing parts of the country. This is where, you know, our continual kind of, this is more and more just what our economy is, is what's happening in these places. And ultimately, Vancouver was one of these places that led better uh, earlier on, kind of recovered a bit quicker. Our, Our lockdowns were a little less extreme. They were loosened up a little bit earlier. BC persistently, you know, there's, you know, these markets do fluctuate, but has been a place that has had 
relatively strong employment growth, especially going back into 2015, 2016, compared to nationally. Some of those kind of gains have really stuck there. Basically, the economy within Vancouver has been doing, doing better than it has been for a while. And really what we started to see is kind of as restrictions have loosened up, we're starting to see the rest of the country kind of close in a little bit more. And that's where we're starting to see the labor market is kind of more nationally improved. We also just saw yesterday, stats can, maybe even this morning, basically say we're back to the GDP levels that we saw. Now we're not, we're still below our potential GDP that we definitely saw, but we've basically recovered back to where we were before the pandemic at this point. And as these conditions kind of both in the labor and economic output have improved, that's really where we've seen the economy kind of come together. And that's really what's starting to create this kind of liftoff pressure that we see in kind of, again, what we were just talking about as far as interest rates and inflation pressure. Very interesting. In thinking about kind of the the story of 2022, we've talked a lot about condos on this show, about this potentially being a big year for condos. I think 2021, you know, I was kind of thinking of what the headline would have been for 2021 and potentially it was low inventory, but also the Fraser Valley just exploding, which a lot of people have been talking about. What do you think the headline of 2022 will be? Yeah, sure. So... I mean, I, I think one thing, one headline, I just to help it out with this answer is um, many people don't believe me, but if you look in the data, 2021 was all-time record sales for condo in the board. I don't, I don't know many people picked up on that. So yeah. this, is the, this is the first time. Well, this is the first time we've had that on the show. So let's yeah. let's talk about that for sure. Yeah. So I mean, there was more inventory that came onto the market. There was, I mean, this is the whole thing, right? All this whole story of people trading up and. Oh, everyone wants single detached and all that. And I was like, well, yeah, it's more favored product as far as relative balance. But people would not be making these purchases if they couldn't sell it to someone. Right. (laughs) right? There was a buyer, right? So So 2021 was the year of the condo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, again, more balanced conditions did not, I mean, prices still grew relatively healthily. Like there's so much condo inventory. Just or not even inventory, but I mean, I mean, just like how's like stock, like where where is it? I mean, Vancouver sticks out, by the way, right across the country. It's just being a place that just has a lot of, you know, the share of households that just live in condo or stratified properties, right? It's high, and you know what we really saw there was we didn't see like like downtown was in no way a ghost town, but like there was no real story there, right? There was that was this, there was no there's nothing super exciting as far as price growth through most of the year. But if you look at like East Van, you look at Port Moody, you look at those, like there's definitely, there's, you know, those, those things are now at record prices, right? <laughs> like there was right. price growth for everything. So there was really this kind of this, this <laughs> real estate's interesting, right? Because, you know, in the background, you have these demographic forces. They're just massive, right? I and mean, everyone's been talking about, you know, millennials are the biggest generation ever. Millennials range from, they're kind of in this band between early middle aged, maybe needing not just, more space because they wanted a kid, but like because they've like one of their second kid <laughs> like upgrading even more right onto their second third property even right as far as where they are on the ladder and but it also covers the range of people who are just getting in right our market is an expensive one right and people buy homes later in life there that's a well-known thing as far as like the average age of first-time home buyers is later in more expensive markets so we kind of saw this situation with these very low rates people were able to trade up and people were also able to get in right and that that you know you just kind of have the the more elder millennials kind of being these people who are kind of rocketed up a bit more 
by the purchases from kind of the younger part of the same cohort and even kind of the older part of the Gen Z generation. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I it's it's funny because that has been the story. Like when you think about the the townhomes, you know, we we've talked a lot about townhomes and and the detached market, but that that you know, it, it doesn't surprise you when you think about it. But but and and also, I do feel like in we maybe didn't say it explicitly, but for instance, last year we had a show about where the opportunity is, and it was basically downtown surrounding areas. Sure. And the the logic there was, you know, not necessarily that it's it's on sale or there's a fire sale, but in relation to everything else, it's kind of plotted along, you know, it might be up a little bit, but, but hasn't seen, you know, it's no Maple Ridge in terms of price appreciation. So I guess we, we kind of, you know, it jives with, with what we've been saying. What do you think Keith is the biggest risk facing the market right now? <laughs> sure. So I guess if we were having this conversation a few years ago, I would have talked about government interventions being a bigger risk than it is today. Like, I think we've thrown quite a bit at this market. And I think even some of the most people who were even pretty, you know, pretty bullish, pretty like, yep, nope, this makes sense. This area, everyone wants to live here. That kind of, you know, there's always a chipper kind of optimistic side and there's always a, you know, nothing makes sense and the world will end tomorrow kind of types, right? Have been surprised by just how much we've put in there as far as trying to restrict credit, trying to restrict kind of the activities of certain investor kind of buyers and owners out there, and then how resilient things have been to that. So as far as like, we could see continued changes, right? We could definitely see things like what we'd see as far as what's going to happen as far as are we going to see more mortgage rule changes? Are we going to see certain tax treatments of investors? What's going to happen out there? And none of that's going to be things that you would say, oh, well, because of that, prices are going to go up, right? But like, as far as how detrimental do you think this is going to be as far as to pricing, probably less than you think, ultimately, really. I mean, Vancouver has very stretched affordability. And whenever you see that, you're always kind of aware that where could the floor be if things really kind of change as far as the value in the market, what people see it in terms of credit conditions. And I don't think it's very likely, but I mean, the market the market is still sensitive to, you know, as much as we've kind of have talked about how much if we got interest rates kind of back into four, where would we be at? But if we start to see rates more into the five or six kind of world, uh, I wouldn't be so certain. Now, that seems incredibly unlikely, right? But we are a market that just, you know, the gap between incomes and the prices is large and there's wealth that definitely plays into that but ultimately it's a lot about credit and if those credit conditions were to change dramatically you think that'd show up in the data mm. no fair enough you know just thinking about the market over the years and how the risks have potentially changed i think a lot of people have been talking about you know there's different narratives around what's driving the market and those narratives have kind of shifted over the last decade you know there's a couple of dramatic shifts. And I feel like multiple people on this show have talked about how we haven't been talking about, say, foreign buyers for the last couple of years. And yet we're at all time low, you know, inventories basically with with crazy demand. How has your perception changed, your perception of the Vancouver real estate market changed, say, over the last wearing your various hats and over the last 10 years? Yeah. So I, I think that's a great question. And what I think would be very interesting is that we, you know, you, th you think of where we were in 2014, 2015, before a lot of the policy changes really came in 2016, right? That's when the foreign buyers tax provincially came in. 
and then that's when we got kind of the first set of data on on foreign purchasers, right? That's when we, like before that, that was all just the players, who they talked to, what polls they did. And that was kind of all the information we had. And we're in this totally different world in terms of the data that comes both from the province, from CMHC, and also from Statistics Canada and the data they've been collecting, right? And there's been, uh, you know, we're, we're, it's night and day as far as what's available for you to look at and what's available for you to see out there. And I th- think it's funny, right? Because like th- that data came out and it's like almost like no one was happy at the end of the day because it was like, oh, every second home's not being bought by foreigners. And yet it's not like half a percentage point of them either. Right. And so everyone just kind of shut up, it seems. Yeah. Right? Because, <laughs> and, and just because the lights aren't on in that tower doesn't mean it's an empty condo. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's weird, right? No, no side kind of caught this like data they just really wanted to parade around right so then everyone kind of picked a few data points that they were you know really happy with and that's what you saw and we we haven't gotten much of a resolution (laughs) as a result as to what's really out there i think i think what kind of came out of it was like yes vancouver is a very international city it is an attractive place and yes there are more foreign buyers you know and that, by the way there's just tons of definitions about that so let's talk about people who you know when i say foreign buyer I, I i like to go based upon the nationality of the buyer versus the residency of the buyer right and a lot of this data kind of can switch between those definitions of them and uh, yeah so it's higher than most places as far as what you see as far as compared to toronto compared to calgary or whatever that's also true but it's like no, it doesn't seem like you're being uh, bought out of your home by this, this kind of wave of offshore money that just buys all these things and just holds them vacant. Like every time we've looked for this, we've found very kind of modest numbers that are like higher than some other places. And nor are they any kind of numbers that really kind of say, ah, yes, that must be the problem <laughs> at the end of the day. Right. It, yeah. It's not as high as the comment section on Facebook would have you believe. Uh, never read the comments section. I mean, <laughs> you, when you're the economist for the real estate board, you never. Oh read yeah, the yeah. <laughs> you're almost as bad as a realtor. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean I've joked. You know, it's like oh, you know, they're hiding this information. And I'm like, I got the system open. I will answer any question you have right now. <laughs> you know, like maybe as a a final question for you, Keith. We we like to to ask guests to bring out their crystal ball, and and we are early on in 2022. You've kind of hinted at what your thoughts are for the next uh, 12 to 24 months, but what do you think is going to happen this year in the market and uh, and any predictions that you might have? And can we actually uh, percentages and and product type? What's going to what's what's the big performer this year? Yeah. So when I look at my forecast, I, I just look at kind of the resale market and looking at sales and prices. I mean. Pretty unlikely we're going to see a new record when we saw when we actually see uh, in terms of actual sales. So overall, probably sales are going to be kind of down to that ten to fifteen percent, kind of in the middle, maybe around twelve percent over last year. But really, going to see the biggest pullbacks are going to be probably more in the detached and attached, and that's just because how elevated they are. They were in 2021. Uh, apartments might tread water, might be pretty flat, but that would still represent very strong sales. New record is possible, but on average, I would predict it probably be around more like negative five, negative ten percent as far as on the sales side. And again, same kind of things where when we look at kind of across the region where we think things are going to pull back the most. When we look at the sales numbers again, non-prices on sales, 
I, I would expect we're going to see a little bit more of a recovery when it comes down to the downtown core. So more like negative 8%, we like kind of the West side, which includes downtown for Vancouver overall, a bit more of a pullback that we see in places like Squamish kind of further out, Whistler, things like that, maybe a little bit more like negative 15, negative 20% when you look at actual sales volume. Going over to what everyone actually cares about when we talk about prices, prices year over year are positive across the board. And I would still predict about 9% across the board. We're going to look at board wide, but about 13% we're looking at for detached, closer to about 10 for attached and about 8% when we look at apartments. Again, the biggest price increases, same as 2021, further out regions continue to probably see the biggest room to run there. And that's just really just going to everyone's talked about. It's like, well, further out regions are still on average going to be less valuable. We're not going to expect these things to flip. The relative value being further out, it's less of a hindrance to the value to the value to be further out so again maybe 13 percent price increases for more like squamish that kind of area where we're going to see a little bit more modest more around the nine percent we talked about most of the north shore burnaby about seven percent on the west side would be my overall kind of forecast i'd say wow so that's fantastic that's specific and uh matt matt likes specific I like matt specifically <laughs> <laughs> um we have this segment, Keith, called the Five Wire, Five Lighthearted Questions to End the Show. Do you have time to stick around for that? Has anyone ever said no? I'm just curious. <laughs> well, if, if they do, we edit it out. <laughs> we so. edit out the question. <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm done with this. Later. Of course. Awesome. So uh, these questions have changed a little bit, but uh, I think the, the essence is still there. But Matt, you want to start it yeah, off? Yeah, I'll start it off. What are you currently binge watching, Keith? Binge watching, uh, I'm not a big TV person, but I did watch the new season of The Witcher on Netflix. Pretty big fan of that series. I think that's that the video game. Yeah, that's the yeah. second person I think that's brought up The, the Witcher? Witcher. Somebody's recently talked about this. Ace mortgage broker Kyle Green, I think. Interesting. And it it was a formerly a, a video game, Keith? Well, it's, it's like a, it's actually originally a Polish set of books. I have not read them. Again, not a big gamer person, but early days of COVID, I did buy an Xbox and that <laughs> is something I did. And then this series came out and like, oh, it's good TV. If you liked kind of the earlier seasons of Game of Thrones and yeah, uh, if you're into that kind of thing, you'll probably like this. So, wow. That's a that's yeah. a good recommendation. I, I feel like uh, I kind of fell off towards the end of Game of Thrones, but the first few seasons were uh, phenomenal. Yeah, I, I, won't, I won't say I won't sell it as being a, uh, a highbrow set of documentaries, but uh, yeah, it's been good. <laughs> Question number two: What song has been on repeat lately? Oh, these days, what do I listen to the most? I don't know. With COVID, it's just been I listen to actually probably surprisingly less music than I have for a long time. Maybe a little obscure for most listeners, but I'm actually originally from Nova Scotia, from Halifax, and big Joel Plaskett fan. Oh and, yeah. Um, anyhow, if you like kind of Canadiana music, uh, this album, truthfully, truthfully, I don't know. That's a song repeat a lot. Maybe pretty obscure for a lot of people listening. But Did if he you, used uh, to have. Was it the and the emergency? Am I misremembering yeah, yeah. that? Yeah, so I don't. I don't really know like uh, how often. I think the band's still around. He just seems to do some solo and some things just uh, by himself. But yeah, that's a good. He's kind of act that I'll, uh, I'd always go out and see. see Little you know, East Coast indie rock. Nice. Yeah. Been buried in any books lately, Keith? Uh yeah, rereading the Storm of Storm the Storm by Mike Duncan. If you've if you're kind of a podcast person, 
History of Rome podcast, all that. That's his first book that he had out. It's a few years old now, but great little story. It's uh, kind of relevant for our times. It's about kind of the gyrations and the politics of the early Roman Republic, kind of before Caesar and all that kind of stuff, and getting into kind of just the growing brinkmanship in the two centuries that led up to the collapse of basically the Roman Republic. And I think just that tells us a lot about what we see in the U.S. And, you know, it's just that ever escalating, you know, factionalism and how it just kind of ripped the system apart. It's fascinating. Interesting. This is, yeah, I feel like the that's really kind of the zeitgeist right now is, is the parallels. A, a lot of thinking <laughs> about the collapse of the, the American Empire. <laughs> Yeah, so this is interesting, right? Because like, there's been a lot of people been talking about like the collapse of the Roman Empire, and this is kind of like the collapse of the Roman Republic, and just like how did you know even before the whole state collapsed, how did you get to the democracy was dead ah. before then, right? So is yeah. that so the the and just so I understand, is this book is did it come out of the podcast? Like, is it is it? Yeah, I guess he, the the author he did this very like multi year long running series on the history of Rome, but then he has a great podcast called revolutions right now if you're really into that stuff as well it's the french revolution the russian revolution even the english kind of civil war period and these kind of large political changes if you're if you're really into that stuff i i I can't recommend it enough but he's written two books and this is the first book he wrote so i think it's from 2017 originally so it's been been out for a few years yeah the storm before the storm by mike duncan i really recommend it that's a great one start of the new year do you have any resolutions you've set this year Oh, for this year, get out of the house more. I don't know. We're at we're two years of COVID. Uh, I think any sort of kind of, you know, it's just like this is this is our lives now, right? And being able to live with it. So my, my biggest thing is um, getting back to routine, even if that's like I'm not going to the office. Like, am I going to bike around the office and back? I don't know. <laughs> bike to the office and home? <laughs> yeah. Like, I... I that for me, that's going to be the biggest thing is like, how do I, you know, if the world does refer, you know, refuses to go back to normal on its own, what can you do to, you know, get back to equilibrium for yourself faster? Right. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and last, last question for you, Keith, and we really appreciate your time. Something for under $1,500 you have bought recently that's had a positive, maybe even a transformative impact on your life. Oh, under $1,500. I'm a cheapskate. I don't buy a lot of stuff. Except for except for real estate, I think I'd even buy a car. I mean, listen, unlike you, I don't get to write it off. Um, <laughs> you know, I just got this new tea kettle that just kind of you can t- set the exact temperature for it. Not to be too pretentious, but it, it makes a big difference. You just need something relaxing to drink. So, That's about eighty great. bucks. It's been yeah, it's just like it's part of my routine. Try to drink less coffee. It's been good. It's interesting. I got my my wife bought a a really great tea kettle a couple years back and it's so good that it and so easy to use that it just forces me to drink more tea i th- I feel like i yeah that's a good one huh yeah excellent well maybe we'll leave it there but keith how can people find out more about what you're up to at rebgv and uh how can people read your analysis yeah because you're doing the stats but you're doing other things as well and i feel like not enough people know about about what you're doing over there yeah, so it comes up, um, you know, in your me- you remember emails, it comes up on the website. You can also follow me on Twitter. So I'm at K Stewart Van on Twitter. I'll kind of post links there, but also sometimes, you know, there's some kind of deeper dives that are not really 
what everyone's interested in and I'll kind of point what, you know, what I find interesting as to kind of always, what's always the headline stat there. Yeah. Look over time though, the, the website for both the internal and the external website, if you remember, probably eventually be updated to have more of an economic section. But uh, as of right now, it's really kind of just what's coming through your inbox. Fantastic. Well, well, maybe as things continue to hopefully open up here over the next little while, it would be fantastic to have you and maybe past guest Brandon Ogmanson in studio. I was going to say, you, you can potentially bike here. I think Brendan lives Brendan pretty lives far out from Vancouver. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, friend doesn't do a lot of, uh, yeah, after work hours events as a result, it seems. <laughs> well, I'm planting the seed. Anyways, yeah. thanks so much for your, uh, for your time today, Keith. All right. It was fun. Take care, guys. There you have it, folks, our discussion with the economist over at the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, Keith Stewart. Really enjoyed that conversation with Keith, Matt. Bit of a history buff, really a surprising five wire, some good takeaways there. I'm going to have to listen back. I and, feel uh, like uh, Keith is a guy either of us may have passed at a brewery in East Van. Wait, in our youth or, oh, I or feel just like, nowadays? Yeah, I feel like he's he's a guy that's in the neighborhood and we just didn't know each oh, other. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a weird direction to go with the history buff. But yeah. uh, I thought you were thinking maybe in, in the liberal arts um, hallways. Nope. No, it wasn't in the, uh, the ivory tower. I was thinking more like... Yeah, studying Gramsci. Passing him at Superfolks. No, no. Oh, you... <laughs> <laughs> totally different angle. All right. Uh, well, what else do we have for today? What else do we have for the day, Adam? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for the live wire. This is our weekly mailer. I am actually, I should mention this. There's a new project, the links. Yep. I'm going to take a look right now. We have extremely early access to this project. It's in the live wire already as we speak. It went out this week. Fantastic. VIP presale. East Van. This is a hot commodity. Nice. So I'm headed over there right after this. The live wire, you get access to those projects. You get commercial real estate deals. You get deal of the month. You get stats by Keith Stewart sooner than everyone else. You also get sales ratios. There's a million reasons why you want to be on the live wire. And those are just a few. We also have private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. There's no way, there's no better way, I should say. There's <laughs> absolutely for, no better way. For Vancouver real estate other than PCS. It's a great way to look for real estate. And we've tried and tested all the different resources out there. And uh, I got to say, a lot of people are getting in touch to sign up for PCS and it is proving very useful. Well, it's useful in any market, but in uh, a market like this, early 2022, I can tell you the asking price is not reflective of the it's sale so price. It's so good to get those sold prices. It's and also, they update in real time. Yeah. And it's also good to get the listings first because the reality is, is people are still dropping the ball on the listing rollout. And it's happening. And if you see it first and they're not waiting on offers and the property looks like it might be undervalued, you might be able to get in there before your competition. Stranger things have uh, happened. Absolutely. So get your free PCS account. It's available at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And just finally, before we cut for the day, you know, we talked about Instagram. We talked about your lead balloons. 
Yeah. Uh, we just have been updating I the feel Instagram. Like we get, we're getting better. We're, we're going to be updating the, the Instagram. Are we getting better? I don't know. Daily. Melissa's definitely still Melissa's red hot on there. She's Insta famous. We are, are not, but we're going to be trying out Instagram. So we'd love for you to, to check it out. It's uh, at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast on Instagram. You can head over there. The VREF community is strong. So give us a follow. Also, thanks so much for sharing the show. I should say we've had so many people reaching out from the community. Our numbers are growing substantially. So thank you for listening. If you, The biggest compliment really that you can pay us is to share an episode or the show with family and friends. We really appreciate the support. Love the community. Absolutely. If you want to talk about any of that, give me a call at any time, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line live from Kokomo Studios, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Have a great week, guys. Another great episode next week. Absolutely. Take care. 2,000 faces for radio. Subscribe today.